One of the great joys of doing a radio program uh, for KDVS is the chance we have to go out and meet really, truly interesting people, people who have made a difference over the years, people who have changed society in some cases, and uh, our guest in this segment is certainly an example of that, the legendary science fiction author Ray Bradbury. I think it's a good bet that almost anyone listening to this program at the moment has read some of the works of Ray Bradbury, which include Fahrenheit 451, Dandelion Wine, The Martian Chronicles, and Something Wicked This Way Comes. He has numerous short story collections, having written well over 300 short stories with numerous screenplays and teleplays to his credit as well. If that wasn't enough, Ray Bradbury has numerous published works of poetry. He's written plays. He even wrote the screenplay for the 1956 John Huston film, Moby Dick. Assisting me with this interview is one of Radio Parallax's Los Angeles correspondents, Bruce Bronstein. Mr. Bradbury, thank you so much for inviting us into your home. It's a pleasure. Thank you. My interest uh, was rekindled in, in, in your work when I read an excellent uh, biography of a man you knew slightly but had a chance to, to observe back in the 1930s, Jack Parsons. Oh, sure, of course, yeah. The author, George Pendle, spoke to you. I guess you corresponded by email about, about Parsons. And I was privileged to be at the, uh, the Planet Fest event hosted by the Planetary Society where they landed the Spirit Rover on Mars. You were in attendance, and they did a reading from the Martian Chronicles. That's correct. They're a wonderful group. In reading this book about Parsons, and, and Bruce has talked about Jack Parsons, how they jokingly refer to JPL as Jack Parsons' laboratory back in the 1930s, but it, it never really struck me till I, till I read this book how literally true it is that those who wrote works of science fiction are responsible for the development of going into space, this build a space program. Oh, yeah. I've bumped into a lot of the astronauts over a period of time, and I discovered that they were reading me and H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and Robert Heinlein and two or three others, but I felt so damn proud that I was an influence on these young men. I went down to Texas, and I was at the Space Center there in January of 1967. And Life Magazine sent me down to interview all the people and to look at the, the, the grounds and see what they were doing. So we had a, a press meeting with the Life Magazine editor there with 70 astronauts, all unknown, no names, you see, because they weren't famous yet. Right. They were just people. And, but I was sitting in the back of the room, and when the Life editor said, and I'm very pleased to tell you, that we have with us today in the back of the room is Ray Bradbury. Sixty of the astronauts jumped to their feet and ran back and surrounded me. Can you imagine how I felt? I was embarrassed and I blushed, but oh God, it was beautiful. Then I spent time two or three days later with John Glenn and he offered to fly me home in his own jet. Wow. What an offer, you know, but I'd never flown up at that time. I was afraid of flying. So I turned down John Glenn, and he said, Well, Ray, he said, the stagecoach leaves for Tombstone in the morning. And every time I've seen John Glenn since, he looks at me and says, Tombstone. <laughs> so, but I, I learned to fly later. I'm sorry 
and that I didn't have that chance, a real chance, and took it. I didn't. It would have been like his own private jet. Well, it was his own jet, yeah. Here we were in this room watching, with holding our breath, literally, as they were about to land this robot on, on Mars. And of course, at that time, they were commemorating how people had seen things like this from so long ago, and, and, and that's where they read from, your, uh, from your, your novel. What was that like for you to be in the room waiting with all of us to see if we were making a landing on Mars? I always knew it would happen, and, but it was wonderful to have it actually occur. And here we are two years later, and these dune buggies are still on the surface of Mars, wheeling around. Well, the extra thing about this, out at Universal, they're planning a new version of the Martian Chronicles. They've owned the rights for eight years. They've got 16 scripts. <laughs> and I call them every once in a while. I say, for God's sake, we're going to civilize Mars before you do the damn film. So there are all these delays with the actual Martian landing and with making the film over. So I've learned to be patient. Well, I understand that Fahrenheit 451 is actually again in production. They're doing, going to do a remake. Can you tell us about that? Mel Gibson bought the rights on that from me eight years ago, too. And there are 16 scripts on Fahrenheit 451. And each one's worse. And you don't need 16 scripts. You know what you do? You shoot the novel. I knew Sam Peckinpah 20 years ago, and he wanted to do one of my novels as a film. I said, Sam, how are you going to do it? He said, rip the pages out of the book and stuff them in the camera. I said, yes, I'm a film writer. I've, I've seen every film ever made. My mother was a maniac for motion pictures. So she started taking me to movies in 1923 when I was three. I grew up in Lon Chaney and Charles Chaplin and all the really great people. And when I was five, I saw The Lost World with its dinosaurs, and it affected my life forever, huh? The whole rest of my life. So, and these people come up to me and they have my properties and they don't do anything with them. And Sam Peckinpah knew what to do, but he couldn't get the money. How did you like the, uh, the 19, I guess 1966, was it, Francois Truffaut version of Fahrenheit? It's a beautiful film in many ways. The main problem comes, he did double casting. He had Julie Christie play two roles. Very confusing. You can't tell the girl from the wife. And anyway, he left out the most important thing of the teenage girl who affects Montag's life. Huh? And it's got to be a teenager, though. See, the fun comes from a man who doesn't know books. and He's burning them. But this teenage girl, Clarice McClellan, comes along. She's very naive. She's a romantic sap. She lives in the clouds, but she knows the weather of time. And she describes all this to Montag, and she wakes him up without knowing it. But if you don't have that in the film, all the fun is out. You don't want an intellectual woman teaching him about books. That's too easy. But it's got to be a sappy girl who's in love with life. So the film's got to be made over, and Clarice McClellan has got to be the center. I loved 
a lot of the other parts of the film and the score by Bernard Herrmann is fantastic. And the ending of the film is one of the most beautiful endings on any film ever made because you've got the beautiful score by Bernard Herrmann coming up during this fall of snow and all the people, the book people are out walking around in the snow remembering their favorite books. And it brings me to tears every time I see it. So that part of the film is gorgeous. So let's do the rest over and do it right this time. What about The Sound of Thunder? That was one of the great, the greatest stories ever. I think the DVD of Sound of Thunder, all right, to show you how they handle the film. Try to find my name on here. My name not on a goddamn DVD. How are you going to sell it? This story has been in 100 anthologies during the last 50 years. Every child in America has read the story. And when they made the film, they didn't put my name in the ads. They didn't put my name on the DVD. Now, how are you going to sell this to all those children that read me? That's how naive the studio people are. That is shocking. Yeah. I understand Gone with the Wind, they left Margaret Mitchell's name out of the whole Oscar ceremony. That's right. That's right, yeah. They're all college educated. They think they know what they're doing. I've met all the people at Universal that are in charge of the Martian Chronicles. They all graduated from college. They all know more than I do because I never made it to college, you see. And so they're stupid in their brilliance. Francis Coppola, he puts the name of the author above above the title, like Mario Puzo is the godfather. Yeah. On the plane uh, coming down here, Mr. Bradbury, I was, I was thumbing to uh, Sam Weller's, Weller's book, the, the Bradbury Chronicles. He looks like he was very thorough in, in his research. Wonderful. He came out once a month, every month for four years. We had a platonic love affair. That's why the book is so good. He spent so much time here. Before he was born, his father read The Illustrated Man to him when he was in the womb. <laughs> That's why the book is so good. <laughs> There's a quote I wanted to just run past because it made me laugh out loud on the airplane. He paints a picture of you having moved out here. You're a teenager. You're, you're on roller skates ahead of your time, uh, skating around Los Angeles, hanging out in front of the studios. And at one point, with your autograph book, you catch W.C. Fields coming out of the studio. He signs your book and says, there you are, you son of a bitch. That's right. <laughs> he, he actually said that. Yes, he did, yeah. But he did sign it. Oh, God, yeah. Well, I've got thousands of autographs. See that box down there? Yes. There's 500 autographs there of all the famous people in Hollywood when I was 13 years old. And you, you actually had to chase Marlena Dietrich down at one point. Oh, yeah. I'm the only autograph collector that ever made it over the wall and became a screenwriter. All those other people, nothing ever happened to them. Well, can you can you tell us a little about that whole L- L.A. milieu? I guess you you uh, you palled around. You you convinced uh, as a teenager. You convinced George Burns to let you come and watch his uh, rehearsals. Yeah, I, I I wrote scripts for the Burns and Al radio show. I was in junior high school. I was I was uh, thirteen years old, and every Wednesday I would go down to the Burns and Al broadcast, and I'd turn in a script for George Burns. And I'm sure he never read them, but he treated me kindly, and he introduced me to Gracie, and this went on for a whole year until I was 15. And 
they actually used one of my jokes on the Burns and Al radio show when I was 15 years old. So 40 years later, I was at the um, Ambassador Hotel giving an award to Steven Spielberg at one at a luncheon. And I, in the middle of the award ceremony, I looked over in the corner and I saw George Burns over there. And I said, I stop everything. I got to tell you about this nice man that when I was a teenager treated me as if I were a genius. And George Burns read my scripts and treated me sweetly and nicely. And I said, I want to give him my own personal award today. Thank you, George. When the program was over, George Burns came running up to me. He said, was that you? Was that you? I remember you. I'll be darned. And we embraced for the first time in 40 years. I'll be darned. That's, well, he remembered you. Oh, God, yeah. Wow. Do you wow. remember the joke that they used? At the end of every show, they had a closing routine, which was 30 seconds long. And this little routine I wrote for them, uh, uh, Gracie makes noises like she's fainting. And George says, Gracie, what's wrong? Oh, oh my gosh, she's fainted. Uh, get a glass of water. Gracie, Gracie, say something. So, Gracie, say something. She says, this is the Columbia Broadcasting System. That was the end of the show. And you're 15, and this goes out all over the nation. Your joke. That's right. Wow. Well, well, back in the 1930s, I understand you were like 18 years of age, and you sort of fall into the uh, the science fiction writers' club, headed by Forrest Ackerman. Can you tell us about Mr. Ackerman and the club? Oh God, yeah. I saw a notice at a bookstore in Hollywood, and I went down to a meeting. They met every Thursday night uh, at the Clifton's Cafeteria, which is still down on Broadway, and the food is still damn good. And it cost me 10 cents for a meeting, and I didn't have money for food, and the Clifton's Cafeteria would give you a free meal if you asked for it. So I got a free meal every time I went there. And I met all the famous writers, and I was still in my last year in high school, and I met Robert Heinlein, and he became my friend and my teacher, and Edmund Hamilton and Lee Brackett, and they all became my friends and my teachers when I was 17, 18, and 19 years old. So I had a wonderful relationship, and that caused me to really become a better writer. So you were really at ground zero of the sci-fi world here in, in Los Angeles. Of all the other science fiction writers, what do you think would be the greatest science fiction story, um, in your opinion? Recent ones or old ones? Old, the old ones, let's say. Well, uh, Jules Verne, of course, and H.G. Wells. H.G. Uh, Wells is a very important writer because he was paranoid. And teenage boys are paranoid, and they need to have a lunatic in charge. <laughs> and which, which story would you think is the greatest science fiction story of all time? Oh. Do you have a favorite? Well, Invisible Man is one. And, uh, and then he did a wonderful story uh, the man who could work miracles, but these are in a way fantasy, not science fiction. And right. he did a book called Things to Come, which made a science fiction film, which came out when I was 16, and it caused me to continue with my love about space travel, because at the end of the film, Raymond Massey is playing a character, and this other guy stands with him, and their children the, the son and the daughter are going off in a moon rocket to the moon. And one of the men says, is this all there is? And then uh, 
the Raymond Cassie, Raymond Massey character says that that is not all there is. That we have to choose the stars or the graveyard. Which is which shall it be, the stars or the dust? And all the voices rise up and sing, which shall it be? Which and I knew the answer when I staggered out of the theater. I was 16. It had to be the stars, and I. I hadn't sold my first short story yet, and I dug in and continued writing and sold my first story on my 21st birthday. And part of it was due to that film. It was a remarkable film. You're a teenager. You're, you're, um, you're hanging out with this. The, um, in fact, you become the editor, I guess, from the, the magazine of the Science Fiction Club. That's right, yes. And at one point, uh, a young man comes over from Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's not that much older than you. His name's Jack Parsons, and he talks about how we're going to use rockets to go off into space. Yes, we were all, we invited him to come down and talk to the group. And I think there were about 30 of us there that evening. And he told us about the Rocket Society. And we could join if we, if we wanted to. But the problem was, all the meetings were over in Pasadena, and I had no way of getting there. I had no money, and it cost a quarter a meeting to go there, and I had no quarter. It was the middle of the Depression, right. and I, I, my allowance was about a quarter a week, you see. So I had that one encounter with Parsons, but I, I knew that I was looking at the future. In the years to follow, of course, over at Caltech, they formed Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and Aerojet becomes a commercial concern by the early 40s, so rocketry soon does get off the ground. And, and it, it's clear that uh, science fiction was the inspiration for Parsons and others. At least it helped. It put a prop under it. You can't uh, claim that you're a complete uh, influence, but we all helped each other. And when you look back on Germany and von Braun, in 1928-29, he looked at uh, Fritz Lang's film, The Girl in the Moon, and that influenced him to invent the V-2 rocket. So we had a combination of good and evil here. When we landed on the moon, one of our first landings, and one of our first landings on Mars for the pho photographic equipment, that's 20 years ago, von Braun was standing next to me. And up until that time, I hadn't let myself be introduced to him because I considered his background with Hitler and the V-2 rocket. And then I realized that was stupid of me, making a judgment because history is full of good and evil, of, of men who begin evil and wind up changing mankind forever. So von Braun is responsible for getting us to the moon and to Mars. So I finally introduced myself, and he, he signed an envelope for me, which I still have downstairs, to Ray Bradbury, who, who influenced me. Ah! So, what a joke, huh? What a joke. I understand that he arranged during World War II, Von Braun, to have American science fiction writings sent to him in Sweden, through a neutral country. That's right, yes, yes. Did you know uh, Hugo Gernsback and John W. Campbell? Well, that was too soon. Too, yeah. he, he, but he was in, important because he put out a magazine called Science and Invention from about 1914 till 1930. 
and it was a magazine that combined magic and sorcery with science and invention. And in the middle of the magazine was a whole page of magic by Dunninger. And I used to rip those out and I wanted to be a magician. So you see, I'm a combination like Hugo Gernsback was of turning magic into science. And that's the history of religion. All the early religions with the Egyptians and the Greeks, they invented mysteries in the middle of the religions to impress people, to scare them, to have sepulchral voices telling people the future. So if you look through the history of magic, you see it changing into science and uh, on the way up to space travel. I guess Arthur C. Clarke is famous for saying that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. There's a lot of that. The magic had to come first because you enthrall yourself. You were affected by mysteries and by romance and by the stunning display of the universe and wanting to be part of it. So that pulls you into the future. One thing that I find intriguing, it's not just people like Parsons and Rockets, but I mean, Arthur C. Clarke wrote a paper. He was, of course, obviously a very famous science fiction writer. He wrote a paper in, I believe, 1945, predicting the uh, geosynchronous orbit for, for, for communication satellites. Isaac Asimov, fantastic science fiction writer, made a career out of writing a lot of science books as well. So it's, it seems to be that science fiction is sometimes leading and science is catching up. They were all scientists. And I, I'm a fantasist. I, I never wrote science fiction. I've only done one science fiction book, and that's Fahrenheit 451, because it's based on fact that could happen. But my Mars is impossible. It's a fantasy. It's in Edgar Rice Burroughs' world. And he influenced me when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. And my first novel written when I was 12 is a duplicate of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars. Do you have friendships with both Mr. Mr. Clark and, and Asimov? I didn't know Asimov that well, but Arthur Clark and I have been good friends for 50 years, even though I'm not a scientist. And you said that Heinlein influenced you, you, you quite a bit. He sort of took you under his wing, did he? Yeah, he read something of mine, and he said, hell, I can sell this for you. And he sent it off to Script Magazine, and he made my first sale for me. Wow. So, the, God bless him, I was 18 years old then. So Which, Heinlein sold my first story. Which story was that? It was a, a humorous story, that uh, a piece of satire, that there used to be a magazine here called Script. It was like the New Yorker. And by God, they bought my story, and I was on my way. When I left high school, I got a job selling newspapers every afternoon at 4 o'clock for two hours. Before I went to the corner each day, I wrote all day, and in the evening I went to the library. So when I left high school, I went to the library two or three days a week for 10 years. I graduated from the library when I was 28. And when, <laughs> when I told the people up the coast I was lecturing, at a university there a few years ago. At the end of my lecture, he came back with my diploma and graduated me from the library. Isn't that great? <laughs> That's cute. Uh, you, you've been friends for a long time with uh, Norman Corwin, who lives not so far from here. 
we had, we were privileged to speak with Mr. Corman a couple months ago, and, and after we leave here, we're going to go visit him again. Okay. Tell us about about your your good friend, Mr. Corwin. Now he became my closest friend and teacher when I was 26 years old. My first book was published, and I listened to Corwin's shows on radio over the years, and was madly in love with his talent. So I got his address and wrote him a letter and sent him a copy of my first book. And I said, Dear Mr. Corwin, if if you like this book half as much as I love you and your shows, please call me. I want to buy you drinks someday. A week later, he called me. He said, You're not buying me drinks. I'm buying you dinner. <laughs> so I went to dinner with him that week. That's 60 years ago. And at dinner, I told him one of my Martian stories. And he said, Oh, God, that's great. Do more of those. So I did more, and Norman Corwin was God to me, and he created the Martian Chronicle. I'll be darned. That's how important he is to me. You did some radio dramas back in the 50s. We're big radio fans. Do you think there's a future for some drama in radio again with satellites and the like? It, it comes and goes, and it, it's still alive in, uh, in, in England. It's not doing as well here. They do a lot of repetitions of old shows. But I'd love to have my own radio show again and be able to do what I did on Columbia Broadcasting System and NBC 50 years ago. One of the great characters in science fiction who plays a prominent role in this whole story about Parsons and, and, and rocketry and, and science fiction is, uh, is L. Ron Hubbard. Did you, know, did you know Hubbard at all? No, I didn't, but I've got a story to tell you about him. Dianetics and Scientology were born here in L.A. A lot of people here uh, taught Dianetics, as it was called, and L. Ron Hubbard came and went, and I never met him, but I knew a lot of people who believed in him. So there was a, a big meeting of Dianetic readers at the Shrine Auditorium, in the fall of 1950. And at that time, Fritz Lang, the great German director, was a friend of mine. And he went to that meeting because L. Ron Hubbard was speaking and uh, they were introducing Dianetics to the public. There were 7,000 people at the Shrine Auditorium that evening. And Fritz came back to my house at midnight in a rage. He, the veins were popping on his brow. He was beat red. He was screaming and yelling. And that was Fritz. Fritz was an angry man. And he stormed into my house. He said, those stupid goddamn bastards, they didn't know what they're doing. I said, what happened, Fritz? He said, I went to the Shrine Auditorium. They announced that L. Ron Hubbard would be there. And on the program was going to be the first clear in history. Well, if people don't know what a clear is, that if you read your genetics and really know it, you become a clear. You clear your mind of all of its problems and psychological barriers, and you are a clear. So he said they had this girl on the stage. She was introduced as the first clear in history because of L. Ron Hubbard, and the audience goes wild, uh, applauding, and then... Someone in the audience stands up and said, uh, uh, Miss, you're clear, are you? Yeah. And that means that you have read uh, Dianetics, yeah? 
And that means if you're a clear, you have the most perfect memory in history, right. Well, can you quote the first paragraph of Dianetics? <laughs> and she, she, she couldn't do it. The damn fools should have had a sh shell in the audience to prepare, huh? And here Fritz was in my house tearing his hair out, saying, if I'd prepared the evening, it would have been brighter than those stupid bastards. <laughs> so Dianetics almost was destroyed that night because they didn't prepare. But it went on and it became Scientology, and now it's all over the world. I'd, I'd heard that night was a fiasco. This is the first first-hand, second-hand report I've gotten. That's right, yeah. It surprised me in doing research, Mr. Bradbury, that you wrote the screenplay for Moby Dick. How, how did that come about? I, I gave all of my books to John Huston one night in January or February of 1959 on St. Valentine's Night, a night to start a romance with your favorite director. And I put all my books out on the table. I said, Mr. Houston, if you like these books half as much as I love your films, someday call me. So he wrote me from Africa and said, you're right, someday we're gonna to work together. I don't know on what. He came back to LA in August of 1953 and invited me up for drinks at his hotel and all of a sudden said to me, what are you doing during during the next year? And I said, not much. He said, well, how'd you like to come live in Ireland and write the screenplay of Moby Dick? I was stunned, I was stunned. I said, I don't know, Mr. Houston. I've never been able to read that damn book. And, <laughs> and, and he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that I was saying that. And he said, I tell you what, go home tonight and read as much as you can and come back tomorrow and tell me if you'll help me kill the white whale. So I went home and I said to my wife, pray for me. And she said, why? I said, because I've got to read a book tonight and do a book report tomorrow. And I read as much as I could and I discovered a remarkable thing that I didn't know, that Shakespeare was all through the book. Hmm. Richard III and King Lear and what have you. And the fact was that Melville never read Shakespeare till he was 30, and then he found an edition of Shakespeare with large type that he could read, and he fell madly in love with, with Shakespeare, and Shakespeare dictated Moby Dick. I'll be so dying. I could read the whole book, but I could surf it, and I could surf Shakespeare, and I went back the next day and took the job of writing Moby Dick. Fascinating. You've received an awful lot of honors over the years, Mr. Bradbury. There's an asteroid that's named after you out orbiting somewhere near the orbit of Mars. You've been honored by the President of the United States. Uh, what has been the most gratifying for you over the years in terms of recognition? No, just going into a library and seeing my books on the shelf near Edgar Rice Burroughs and H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, that is the moment for me. Wonderful. Just wonderful. I've led a fantastic life. I've never had an unhappy day in my life. In the last 70 years, I've never had one day of depression or melancholy. You know why? Because every day I do something that I love. I've had bad days when my friends die, 
when my relatives die, that's different. Something else, you can't do anything about that. But every day that I'm all by myself, I'm happy because I'm doing what I should be doing. If everyone in the world could do that, it would be a great world. Ray Bradbury, we thank you very much for speaking with us. Uh, this has been most interesting for us. We hope that we'll be able to, to, to chat again sometime. I hope so. And in the meantime, next time you see Norman Corwin, tell him I still love him. All right. Ray Bradbury received an Emmy for his work on The Halloween Tree. He's also received the World Fantasy Award Life Achievement, the Stoker Award Life Achievement, and on November 17, 2004, Ray Bradbury was the recipient of the National Medal of Arts presented by President Bush. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and you are listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. We're going to take a short break, after which we will return and speak about the upcoming June 6th primary election to talk with our usual resident liberal and resident conservative commentators. Stay tuned for that. <laughs> 